but yeah no the army doesn't prepare like active duty soldiers like the way you'd think they would want to to there there are programs for it but they're just not really perpetuated into they're not really announced to these people the people in active duty they don't really know about them and the ones that do it just doesn't really work for them and a lot of the programs aren't even military related they're on the civilian side uh but yeah no it, the military absolutely creates a next generation of soldiers because they want you to be exposed to all this stuff they want you to get that in, into your head like hey join the army or join whatever branch your parent is in and it, it works it works Welcome to the Generation Zion podcast with Todd and David. Together, they discuss the war against God in the world today. Hello, and welcome to the Generation Zion podcast. I'm David. I'm Todd. And sorry we didn't do a opener last time. We were kind of in a uh, rush to get things started because we had a, some new equipment to set up <laughs> and we had to figure out how to get started uh, with the new stuff. So, hello and welcome. So today we're going to be talking about, uh, this is actually going to be a two-parter because I couldn't get a guest on that I wanted to, so we had to reschedule. Uh, but it's going to be a two-parter about the military and bureaucracy as a whole. Um, so Todd's going to be leading this one. He's going to be asking me questions about my experiences and uh, how that can relate to really anything uh, against uh, the war on the war on God, because that's what this is about. <laughs> so if you want to open, Todd, yeah. Well, first off, we want to get to know you a little, and. Uh... I think knowing how you grew up will help people understand how that shapes your idea of the military, help, uh, how that help, really helps shape your, your life, and, um, and really your background is the seed of all that. So first off, um, where were you born? So I was actually born in as an American citizen. My dad met my mother while he was in Korea, because she was going to school in Korea. Uh, but she eventually had to drop out of school to go back home to take care of her mom. Uh, I don't really, it's kind of gray for me in between that, but eventually they had me in between all of that, and then they got married. As soon as I was born, we uh, moved over here. He somehow, I don't know how, I think it was the governor at the time, uh, helped us actually get all that paperwork set to have me uh, move over here and my mom. So that was really nice of whoever that was at the time. I'm not sure if it was the governor, but I'm, he said it was. So uh, so from I, that's where I was born. From there, I went to school uh, right here, actually. And shortly after that, my dad uh he was in res the reserves at the time because his uh active duty contract expired and he re-upped for a reserves contract but then he was like you know i don't really want to do this anymore so he uh went through whatever you had to do to get back into active duty um 
and we moved to which was it first it was fort hood first but i don't want to get too far into it before uh, you have another question that, to ask. That, no that's right that, that's basically the the groundwork for my early life so what what branch was your father in? he was in the army in the army yeah. and um so when he was uh that's really interesting to me that he actually left full-time active duty to become a reservist only to go back into active duty. And how old were you when he did that? Um, it's hard right now. Uh, I think I was like either four or five. I was like really young. I only went to school here in elementary school for like a couple of years and before I knew it, I was in, I don't even remember like the airplane ride or anything packing. I was just kind of here and then I was there. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> everything's really gray now. Like I don't remember a lot from that time. I remember like important things, but. Well, let's continue with the timeline because you, you stopped at Fort Hood next. Fort and... Hood. Yeah. Uh, you know, back then it wasn't like murder central uh, like it is now, but we'll talk about that uh, probably not if not tonight then later but uh it was it was all right from what i remember you know i made friends i play on the play playground i was just a kid it wasn't really all that it was it wasn't really that much different than any other kid having a childhood or any other kid's childhood but uh when i really started like noticing that I had a different childhood than other kids was when I was when we moved to Korea after that uh so I was we were in Fort Hood for I want to say like three or four years and then Korea for three or four years and that's when I started to realize that I don't really have like the same childhood a lot of kids have because I would spend a lot of time without my parents in the house uh at least my mom was there for a good while because she worked uh she actually worked at the school i went to on base and but my dad was pretty much out for whole days and he was there for weekends but we didn't really get a lot of time to spend together and when we did we usually went out on the uh on the streets in korea and we did you know a bunch of things it was really like korea is one of those places where you can just go walk around mm -hmm. and enjoy your time there just because it's a nice city seoul Seoul is a nice city. Hmm. It's just a nice country overall. Um, but I had, I didn't have a lot of friends I could hang out with anymore because we didn't even live on base anymore. He didn't want to live on base because there's a curfew. Uh, so uh, yeah, in Fort Hood, you lived on base. Yes, in Fort Hood, we lived on base. It was like a, uh, I don't know how to describe it. It was like an apartment complex for enlisted soldiers. Okay. And I had plenty of friends over there. We would all go outside and there was like a, so there was the parking lots on either side and the buildings. And then in between it was a bunch of yardage. Mm -hmm. So we'd all go out there and we'd hang out and there's a pool. It was, it was nice. Uh, but I spent a lot of my time just inside or out outside in the front yard. If, if when we were in a, well, call it a yard, it was more like a big parking spot. Uh, until we moved to the apartment and then I spent a lot of most of my time just inside playing video games and when we did go we did go out every once in a while but for the most part I was inside and I was like wow this kind of sucks I, I want to go outside and 
hang out with my friends, mm. but you know, they all go to, uh, they all live on base and we, we go to the same school, but I can't really do anything beyond this because we're like a mile from base. And this part was in Korea, right? This was in Korea. Yeah. So, and, and at that point you weren't seeing your father a lot during, during the week. Yeah, no, I almost never, he, uh, Korea is, has terrible units, honestly, uh, based on what I've heard from other soldiers that have been in Korea. It's a great place. Everyone wants to be stationed there, but a lot of people quit after Korea just because of the unit they, they were put in just because it's horrible leadership. Hmm. Uh, but after Korea, we moved to Fort Bliss. He was stationed at Fort Bliss. Honestly, the worst experience of my life. I hated Fort Bliss. Now, where's Fort Bliss? Fort Bliss is in El Paso, Texas. Okay. Right by the border. Um, it was honestly terrible. I hated every second of it because it was always hot. Always, it was dry heat too. It's it was terrible. Uh, I. Honestly, I didn't make a lot of friends while I was there. <laughs> when I was uh, younger, I was like in middle school at the time. Around twelve, twelve-ish. Yeah, I want to say. Uh, I want to say yeah, twelve, twelve, eleven, twelve, around that. Uh, so yeah, that was another four years. I can recall that easily because it, that wasn't actually super long ago. It was about only a decade ago. So. Um, so there was a lot of, there's actually a lot of drama, like living on base, like just as a kid, because all those other kids around you, they're, they're also preteens and they were raised in the army. So they kind of got this sense of, I don't know, superiority kind of. So we all wanted to be like one upping each other. (laughs) So we'd like climb off of roofs and jump off of them and start climbing on people's houses at night, which wasn't allowed by the way we're not you're not supposed to do that but we did it anyways uh climb a lot of climbing climbing trees climbing houses jumping off things uh, doing stupid stuff at night and it that was the fun part but it wasn't fun because at the same time like doing the thing was fun but at the same time i didn't always feel like i had to one up everyone but it was just the kind of the culture mm-hmm and uh i kind of just lost all those friends because they i don't know they, i guess drama or something as a kid but uh i actually went to school off base by the time i got to middle school which was i only spent a little bit of time there in middle school and then uh it it, it was terrible just because there's so much bullying all over the place. And it was like the kind of high school you'd see in a movie mm-hmm. in the eighties or like, Oh, you're fucking shoving people up against lockers and taking their lunch money and that kind of thing. It wasn't the kind of place I really wanted to be in just because that's just, I never felt like that was how school should have been. Uh, that kind of environment wasn't really that great uh, for me. So moving up here, up north, was kind of like a culture shock after that. I was like, wow, no one's being bullied here. No one's you know, pushing each other around. And I guess that's what comes with uh, 
the the clashing of cultures you know being by the border i went to school with in going to school off base i went to school with a lot of mexican immigrants and they kind of brought their culture over not to say that they're violent but i guess their school systems are different than ours is in most of the country so they kind of bring that over and that kind of mentality over so i can't say what their schooling is like but it's probably not the same as ours uh not a lot more on el paso it was just really hot and i hated it so now when did you find the bullying came from um that different culture or do you think that the culture of like the texans because texas has its own culture there. yeah no absolutely uh i never really experienced it when i was in fort hood probably because i was like two feet tall and no one i never really saw that kind of thing Mm -hmm. because we didn't really bully each other children we didn't have the brain capacity to bully uh i i guess you could say it's part of texas culture but i didn't really i want to say i like lived in texas but it felt more like i was living like on i was literally on the border Mm. so there's kind of like a mixing of cultures there so i can't really say for sure but when i was in ait not too long ago i was in san antonio and you know that is that is texas san antonio is texas but i didn't go to school at that point i was in the army um to learn my job function so but yeah there's definitely a uh culture there that's different across the country uh so I can't, I I honestly can't really say uh, for the rest of Texas because that was just too close to call, you know? Yeah. Which I I can imagine because even aside from what kind of cultures might be clashing, I I know that if you go up Northern Maine, for example, the, uh, the French Canadian, um, you know, the, the French Canadian being right there, but there's a whole different culture in Northern Maine than it is down. Right. It's, it's different across the whole country. Yeah. But, yeah, in Texas in general, I can't really say. But in El Paso, absolutely, I can say that there's a lot of... I don't know how it is today, but it's probably the same. It hasn't been that long. So so you came here, and then you finished high school here. I First, we uh, moved to Vermont after my dad retired. Then we moved to Vermont, and we were there for, I want to say, Three years, about three years, because my parents were uh, building their credit to buy a house here. Mm-hmm. At first, the plan was to live in Vermont, but then we decided this is a little too expensive. Taxes here are crazy, mm-hmm. and it's super blue. We don't want to live here. Yeah, despite like what you'd think, Vermont's very blue. Like you go up there and see all the country and you think, wow, this place is probably a red state, but no, it's not. It's, it's oh, really, it, it, was a, it was a huge surprise to me because my impression of the countryside was you know, very Republican kind of people, you know, vote red, Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, then we moved to New Hampshire uh, and I finished high school in New Hampshire. But here's the funny thing about Vermont. So sixth grade is actually still elementary school. I don't know if it's here too, but in Vermont it is. 
So I actually went from middle school back to elementary school and I graduated again from elementary school. Really? Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was kind of funny to me. So I went to middle school and I experienced all of that calling to cult, kind of culture. And then I went right back to elementary school and it was really, really calm. And I was like, wow, this is, this feels wrong. <laughs> uh, so yeah, then I came back up here. Uh, I did high school there for a little while. I was only there for like a year for during my high school uh, career. And then I finished high school over here in New Hampshire, which again, it was a shock that no one was bullying each other to me. Like, yeah. It yeah. wasn't like a huge uh, culture surrounding that. Well, I, you know, I think it's probably a relative thing because I, I have a feeling that some soft New Hampshire kids probably think there's tons of bullying. Yeah. <laughs> it's cool. So, I mean, there's, there were, there were absolutely fights. There were fights like almost every day at where I went, but, uh, there were like a dozen fights yeah. in El Paso. So every yeah. day. So just comparative to the number of fights per capita. <laughs> so one thing I'm curious about is when you were jumping off things, climbing up things, trying to one up each other back there. And that was in Fort Bliss, right? That was Fort Bliss. Yeah. Were you guys trying to play army? Did you guys play army? We played army. army. We that... played a lot of army. We had walkie talkies. We had our nerf guns, our airsoft guns, whatever we had. And it was, it was a lot of, yeah, I shot you. No, you didn't. Yeah, a lot of that <laughs> stuff like kids do. So when you were playing Army, is it, do you think that it might be different for you playing Army on a base or around a base at least um, to, to be, well, if you're with other military kids, um, is there a different feel of Army? Do you feel that there is a, a thrust to prepare you to be the next generation in the Army? Oh yeah, it the army creates it like a sense of you wanting to join the army. It, that's the whole point of like so the army does this thing where it doesn't prepare its soldiers in active duty at least to retire and go into the workforce. Because when my dad retired, he wasn't ready. He didn't know what he was going to do when he retired. Because he was a engineer and an MP, but at that point, since he medically retired, he couldn't become an actual police officer because he wouldn't be able to pass their standards. Um, because he was like, let's see, like something 80, 70 percent disability, and he can't run hmm. like he used to because uh, the army broke his body. When he worked in the armory, he uh, had a. Uh, I forget what it was. It was either a machine gun or a grenade launcher. It fell on his shoulder Ooh. and messed his shoulder up. He had to get surgery. And after that, he got medically retired. Uh, but yeah, no, the Army doesn't prepare like, active duty soldiers like the way you'd think they would want to. To there, there are programs for it, but they're just not really perpetuated into... They're not really announced to these pe the people in active duty. They don't really know about them. And the ones that do, it, it just doesn't really work for them. And a lot of the programs aren't even military-related. They're on the civilian side. Uh, but, yeah, no, it, the military absolutely creates a next generation of soldiers because they want you to be exposed to all this stuff. They want you to get that in, into your head like, hey, join the army or join whatever branch your parent is in 
and it, it works. It works. Is there outright propaganda in the schools for these things? No, no, not. I wouldn't say there's propaganda in the schools. Uh, I didn't go to high school on base, but it, I mean, it might be a lot more hmm. in, in a high school than there would be in an elementary school just because of, you know, not even through the teachers, like in the administration putting out propaganda, just through like high schoolers alone, like talking about the military and yeah. like, oh, my dad's like a officer and my dad's like a master sergeant and your dad's like an E4 or something. So you you know like, I don't want to join the army and I'm gonna become better than your dad. So you know <laughs> things things like that. But yeah, the army does at least the army does want to create this next generation because who else is gonna join, right? That's true. Especially in today with today's army, and I, I don't want to really I don't want to jeopardize myself, but as a soldier, but uh, the army is not what it used to be. I can say that safely because. It, it's just it absolutely isn't because the between the difference between when my dad joined and when I joined uh, basic training is it's gotten soft because the way he described it it was a lot tougher like I was expecting to be and it was still it still wasn't super easy per se but I could have sat on the back of a truck on every single ruck and still got pushed through because they're just hurting for numbers so bad <laughs> the drill sergeants did make it like they tried to make it as clear as possible. Oh, we're going to recycle you or kick you out if you don't do this. But then people just didn't do it and they got pushed through anyways. Hmm. Like, like schools. So how much how much did you know about what your father did when you were growing up? Like how much were you aware? I mean, you knew he was in the Army. You knew that he would be doing things. And obviously not, if he was part of any anything that was, you know, secret or he wouldn't breach any security, but how much did you kind of know what he was doing? I, I knew what his jobs were when he was in, like, it, he was an engineer, he went forward in front of everyone more time and uh, took care of explosives and bridges and things like that, like an engineer does. And when he was an MP, that, that was kind of self-explanatory, he was a cop. So he'd come home and tell a story about how he tased a guy that was drunk off his balls or something mm. like that. So I knew what he did, and I read books. There's there's a lot of books going back to like the propaganda thing. There's a lot of books in libraries about the military, especially in schools on base. So like every section has something on the military. You can't look anywhere without seeing something about it, which is fair, I guess, because they they want to prepare another generation of soldiers. Uh, but you, if you want information on something, you probably find it in the library at a school. Yeah, at a school. It's crazy. Again, yeah, that's uh, that, that's that's fair, especially if it's you know it, it, it's sort of passive propaganda, if nothing else. Yeah, yeah, it's not like right in your face, but that's how they get you. It's like we're not forcing you; we're not trying to force this onto you. Just subtly introduce it to you, so you get the idea in your head. Yeah, yeah, which also is not a bad thing because if you need if you need an army, if you need a navy, you want to right. continue. No, I there's I have nothing. I mean, Understand. I want to say I have nothing against it. But I don't blame them for it yeah. because they need numbers to defend a country. Yeah. Uh, it's power numbers. and But here's the thing about that. There is power numbers, but if you're taking anyone, just anyone in, uh, you, you're not going to get the quality you want. And I would rather have a force of 200 badasses than a force of 2,000 idiots. Mm-hmm. And not to say that everyone in the military is an idiot. There's a, there, I work with a lot of smart people, 
especially in the medical field like a lot of smart people are in the army uh but for the most part if you're just going to let anyone in that quality is going to lower and if you lower the standards that quality is going to lower and then every year it seems like the standards are lowering more and more just so they can meet those numbers and the arm the military as a whole hasn't been meeting numbers even the air force the air force you would think oh it's an easy life so they're going to get their numbers it's just an easy way but no not even the air force is meeting their numbers they're getting closer than everyone else hmm. but they're still not making that quota we're still not filling spots that are necessary. So let me ask you, what prompted you to become a soldier? Well, at the time when I was going in, the military was actually improving. Because after the Obama era, when Trump got in, he was cleaning up the military. He was cleaning up the whole government. So my idea was, well, people like this, so he's probably going to get in again. But then he didn't. So... <laughs> But I was, I joined a month before the election. Before the the latest one? Yes. Okay. So mm-hmm. I joined a month, October 2020. That's when I joined. And then when I was, I already signed everything. I was going to go. Biden won. I was like, you know, screw it. I'm just going to do it. Because how, how can this get much worse? It's still kind of bad, but it was improving. So I don't feel like he's really going to touch it and just leave it alone then it got worse (laughs) so uh by the time i actually went to basic training standards have been lowered again Hmm. so and they've just been lowering every every year since then and at that point i was like wow what am i why did i get on that bus like i could i I mean i could still leave at this point but you're already in so deep you're like no you're you're in so deep you're submerged in the pond what are you going to do? You went all this way. You might as well go through with it. But that whole time throughout all my training, I was like, why am I, am I here? This military is not what I want to be. It's not what anyone thinks it should be unless you're, you have no idea what a military should be. A military should be strong and it should be competent. And for the most part, you can still do that. It, it, we can still fight a war. But our ability to fight one competently is, I feel, is lowering. Hmm. Now we've talked about bureaucracy before. Um, did you? Were you aware? I mean, I think there's a joke among everybody. Uh, I I've never been in the military. My grandfather was in the army, and that was the last person uh, that I know of in my family who was in the military. But there's always been this kind of joke that the, you know, the idea of military intelligence being an oxymoron, <laughs> you know, or that that the, it's filled with this kind of bureaucracy. And bureaucracy is always kind of another word for, uh, I don't know if it's exactly idiocy, but it's always, it's always this idea that they can't, they always are getting in their own way. And it's usually the, the brass who are, I think, that have been, you know, pointed at rather than. Your rank and file soldier. Yes, absolutely. And I think that even among that, it has not necessarily been that right criticism of military people or the military in general, because I think that even people I knew, I, I have great respect for the military ideal, I'll call it. You know, and I think that those who fulfill that ideal, I have respect for. But then there are a lot of individual soldiers I wouldn't get let get near my sister 
or oh, anybody yeah, I, I cared about, too. And <laughs> I, I feel the same way about cops. I respect the police, and there are individuals who I, I, have, uh, I have met in different areas that I respect, but I also know of a lot of, the, of them that I wouldn't, again, want anywhere near my sister or, you know, anybody I cared about. So it's great that you said that because there are two separate things in a bureaucracy. There is the mission and there is the organization. The organization, the people who work for it, the people who work closely to it, like the officers and the administrators are going to work for that administration they're going to work to keep that up the enlisted soldiers the people who are actually boots on the ground doing the work they're going to be working towards the mission and not every single soldier is great in working towards that mission effectively because again standards lowering but for the most part they're going to be focused on the mission and that mission isn't getting fulfilled you can believe in the mission but as long as you are being held back by the administration by the organization itself you're not going to be able to complete that mission and the mission of the military is to keep the United States safe and spread the word of freedom, mm -hmm. right? Plant the seed of freedom. But that's harder to do when you have bureaucracy holding you back. When you think of bureaucracy, you're, you're thinking of paperwork. You're thinking of wait times, all of that. Think of the DMV, but times 10. That's the military right now, as of now. Back then it was you can get out there and start doing shit immediately. But now it's you You got to wait. You got to get the paperwork. You got to go through the chain of command. You have to. And there's nothing wrong with the chain of command. But when it's been riddled with so much bureaucracy and paperwork and just all this junk that gets in the way of you actually accomplishing your mission, it, it just becomes a burden. Like, for example, we have to, even as a reservist, we have to complete our metrics. We have to go through all of our paperwork we have to go through our files make sure everything's right we have to schedule these appointments and this comes out of our own time that we could be using the train mm -hmm. we can't do it we can't do some of the stuff on our own time because some of us have work some of us want to spend our free time alone and other things we just can't do without proper guidance from uh, the person who deals with these kinds of things there's just so much involved in it we can't get all the training we want in to become a, become an effective force especially as as me as a medic like i need to stay sharp on my skills so i can be effective but i feel like i can't because i can't even get a job on the civilian side as an emt like when i got out of training for example i applied to like eight different ambulances didn't hear a word back from them. I called them, said, hey, uh, I'm interested in this job. I'm just calling to let you know if you uh, went over my resume yet, uh, things like that. But I didn't get a single word back from them. I was qualified. I just got out. But now I probably couldn't even put together an oxygen tank because I just let those skills diminish because I have no opportunity to work on them. So you think that the military, especially with jobs like mine, they would go out of their way to make sure that you got these jobs because reservists go first. If there's a if war is declared, reserves go first because active duty needs to take care of the military bases. Hmm. Then we start dipping into active duty if it you know, if the war continues and so on and so forth. But for the most part, the reservists go first, so they need to be the most prepared out of anyone because we're going to be there first. We're going to establish 
these forward operating bases. We're going to establish these perimeters and we're going to make sure that when Active D gets there, there's already these, these things set up for them so they don't have to deal with it by the time we're gone. Mm -hmm. So the idea that the military doesn't go out of their way to make sure that people like me get jobs on the civilian side that are related to their MOS is absurd to me because that just reduces your preparedness as a soldier. Absolutely. I that that astounds me. Really does astound me that they would not go out of their way, that they would not have some sort of pipeline there to do that for that exact reason. That exact reason that that would keep you that would give you every reason to keep your skills up. And not to say that soldiers are incompetent and they can't do it on their own, but it's just hard when you I feel like especially with like firehouses you need to either A, be a firefighter already, or B, know someone to even get a job as an EMT there. And they don't even pay well. Hmm. I was willing to bite the bullet and take the pay decrease to become an EMT just so I can stay on top of my skills. I was willing to take those hours. I was willing to take that pay so I can stay on top of my skills. Now I'm, I'm making decent money. I don't want to go back. I don't want to take the decrease because I have a certain way of living now. And I don't want to take that decrease hmm. Even if I'm working for like one or two days a month, that's just I'm just losing money still because I could be taking overtime at my new job now. Yeah. But the the idea is the military needs to have a way for soldiers in the reserves and guard to have jobs on the civilian side that relate to their jobs in the military. And the fact that something like that doesn't exist and that is is ridiculous and. uh they say talk to your people at your unit and try to find jobs with them. But when everyone's coming in from different places, Massachusetts, Vermont, Maine, it, it it's hard to land a job with those kind with those people because they're just too far away from where you are. Mm -hmm. I was willing to drive an hour out for this other place, an hour there, an hour back, which is already a crazy drive. But I still I still couldn't get any jobs like with any ambulance company any any hospital even just doing like low-level work did you get any uh when you called them up or when you did you get, ever get any feedback about why was it no. just you you really no. just got silence i didn't get silence they said no it's either no we haven't looked over your resume yet we haven't got to it or was yes we have and we're going to get back to you you know no, they just never they, and they never do yeah that's 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 I, I don't know, um, you know, I know some people who are EMTs. Um, I know one person particularly who's an EMT and uh, works in the Seacoast area. And um, and uh, it's it just, it's strange to me. I, I It's strange to me that they would not want someone who is trained at the level that you're trained. Or I can, I can do more functions than a regular EMT can. I mean, not legally, but I can. I'm trained to do these things. Yeah, I'm at at the point I was graduated. Not now, but by the point I was graduated and I had all my certification, I was more adept than a regular EMT that just got out of their regular civilian course. Hmm. Because yeah. I can I can treat a variety. I could treat a variety of things way more, and I could perform more con functions with the tools that I was trained to use. 
because you you have a lot more trauma on a battlefield than oh, you yeah. have. So when you when you go for drill, is do you personally go and do medic things, or is drill just a general military type of exercise? So when we take care of all of our metrics, so we get all that paperwork out of the way, we try to take care of it as soon as possible, like with both units I've been to, or even even when I was uh, still doing training, we took care of this stuff, uh, but it was on like a lesser scale because we were still in training, but. For the most part, we try to take care of all of that first so we can get out of the way and then we can get to our training. It was really slow with my first unit because there were like three people there and no one was no one had any motivation because we it was just a detachment. It wasn't really we didn't do a lot. But with this new unit I'm in, I'm seeing an improvement hmm. just because uh the amount of motivation the NCOs have and the leadership uh has the improvement in leadership. We didn't have a first sergeant where I was, which is a very important role because they take care of a lot of stuff for the enlisted soldiers. Hmm. Uh, like they manage the budget, they manage training and all that, but we just didn't have someone like that in the previous one. But I'm still seeing where we need to take care of all this stuff and we don't have all the time we need to finish our training. So we don't ever, it seems like we don't ever finish all the planned training. Because we have to take care of other things. We have to take care of supply and inventory and all these other things before we can even get to our training. And again, it's that bureaucracy, all that paperwork getting in the way of us doing what we need to get done. So if you, what would you expect if you were sent overseas right now, let's say to the Ukraine area? What would you expect that your level of functioning would be? How would you get back to that thing? Would it would just be a, another crash course to get back into to bring your? Obviously, you have this whole depth of knowledge already. You have a breadth of knowledge already. But like you said, unless you're doing it on a regular basis, the the finer points of these things are going to go away, or at least dull. Right, especially in medicine because it's always changing. Yeah. So I wouldn't know exactly how they would brush up my skills just because it depends. It, it, it varies from unit to unit. It's all it's all up to the commander. It's always up to the first sergeant, whoever's going to be managing that kind of training. Uh, what I would think, what would be the most effective thing to do, which probably wouldn't actually, now that I think of it, wouldn't be done because the most effective thing is never done because that would be too easy, right? Uh, but what I would do is just train every day bring i would bring my book with me my emt book my emergency care book i would go through it i read it every day and train every day on these things especially like for like regular trauma that you'd see on the battlefield or hmm. severed limbs gunshot wounds things like that uh maintaining vitals but especially with ukraine now we don't have uh air superiority anymore we don't have all these bases set up like we did in Iraq and Afghanistan where you could call a helicopter and they'd be there within an hour and they could transport them. Uh, but now it, we have to focus more on long-term field care and that's even harder than what we were doing before in the Middle East because now we have to keep them, we have to stabilize them and keep them there until we can get them transported. Hmm. But now that, that responsibility rests on me. Because I'm going to be the guy who has to stabilize them. 
I'm going to be the guy who has to stabilize them. I'm going to be the guy who keeps them alive while we go there. And I don't feel confident in my own skill to be able to do that just because I don't practice enough on the reserve side. And what's even more ridiculous is that just because they can't pay me, there's only so much training. There's only so many drill days you can do in a year. There's only so many days they'll pay you. So if I go over my... So let's say I go to a different unit so I can train with them because they need someone to train them in medic stuff or they I need to go to the range to qualify and they're doing that. Uh, let's say they have a three-day and I have a two-day coming up. They can only have me on for those two days or one day even the following month because I already did three days with that other unit. So I'm missing out on training because the army won't pay me anymore. Hmm. <clears throat> so what do you think, what do you think would need to change um, from an organizational um, perspective, from, just from your observation, just from what you're thinking, because I know you're a thoughtful guy. What would need to change in the army in order to, or in politics in order for um, good organization, good, good uh, common sense to uh, to reign? I guess I would start with officers. I would start with them because if you just get some lousy degree in communications. And you can become an officer and you don't even do it. You don't even have to do anything related to your degree. Because right now the Army's idea is, oh, you went to college, you're already disciplined, you don't have to do any of this stuff. The first thing I would do if I was in charge is make officers go through basic training. Oh, they don't so have they, to. No, they don't. They don't. Uh, if they go, let's say they go to well, West Pansy, Point. Pansy college kids don't have to go through them. Okay. <laughs> right? So they all, they already join with a sense of superiority because they don't, they're not put on that same level. Enlisted soldiers are all put on that same level. So we all respect each other in one way or another. Even if you don't like your NCO, you know that they went through the same thing as you. Uh, at, at least from a... You know, a general standpoint that you went through the same training. Not really anymore because the standard's lowing again. But for the most part, you're ground level, same same person. You're in the same level. The officers, they don't have to do all that. They can join straight out of college without any any sort of discipline. They can, they can be just drinking last night and decide, hey, I want to join the army and become an officer. As long as they have some stupid piece of paper. Yeah, and that creates officers that don't listen to their enlisted soldiers. The dumbest thing an officer can possibly do is not listen to their soldiers. And that is just too common of a theme in the military right now. Hmm. Officers don't listen to their enlisted soldiers. These guys have more experience but I'm just going to do what I want because I know better than them because I have a college degree. And that is a poison hmm. that is plaguing the military. Do you think that, um, well, do you think that promotions, the idea that these officers, well, let me, let me just step back for one second. I, I work with somebody whose son is in the Air Force and he's sort of on this little arc 
where he's in there for long enough and he gets just keep promoted every so often. I think it was just promoted to, to captain. Um, and I know this this kid's sharp. He probably earned being captain. No, you don't. You and, you don't earn it up to there. So, so first lieutenant, second lieutenant, or second lieutenant, first lieutenant, captain. You don't really earn it. You just sort of you just kind of through. those first three ranks. You just get promoted after captain. Uh, I think you did do like an ability test or something. I'm not really sure. Like based on your what you what you do as an officer. Uh, and that'll determine whether you promote or not. Most or a lot of officers just retire after captain because they just stay as a captain. Um, but those first three three ranks you don't really work for. So it, if um, do you think that that actually helps or hurts because they don't have to try to go for that promotion i mean it's the same for enlisted the first four ranks e1 e2 e3 e4 you don't have to work for you just have to have time and service which i think is fair because just your time in your grade alone should determine your experience at least one would think and i think the same goes for officer because you don't really do anything super important until major anyways that's interesting that to me that that's at odds with how i would think but the 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 reason i'm asking that is because recently i saw an article where um somebody and this is in the corporate world so this is not in in that world the military world but it's in the corporate world but they're saying that there's a there are a lot of layoffs now because the way that people get promoted these days in some of these corporations are by expanding the amount of people underneath you, right? You're expanding the amount of people underneath you, so it looks like you really are leading this larger organization, and then you get promoted. Of course, expanding that many times is inefficient, which leads to layoffs. So when it goes back to what they used to call right-sizing, people just get laid off. But this this person would, would try to expand under people underneath them in order to do that. I don't know if the military could even follow that because obviously it's not a corporation that can't just hire or get more people. I'm sure there's assignments that are part of it. But is some of that same mentality causing those people to look up and just look up and look up rather than, than have a need to look down? Oh, yeah. Um, and with layoffs, it, happens, it happened in the Obama era. Like, soldiers got forced to retire to downsize the military. That happened. Uh, but with the, the officers just looking up and NCOs just looking up, yeah, that happens. That happens a lot. Uh, it's a bureaucracy. You want to get that next paycheck. You want to do whatever you can to get it. And they don't really always look down at their soldiers and say, I have an organization to take care of. I have people to take care of. I have a country to protect. So, and I think it goes both ways. We need to improve the quality of our officers. We need to improve the quality of our soldiers overall. The more well-rounded we can have of an individual, the better we can have, and the better organization we can have overall. So I think it goes both ways. We need to improve the standards for our enlisted soldiers, and we need to improve the standards, especially for our officers, because they're the ones leading the soldiers. These are the guys that are going to tell you what to do overseas in any conflict. So really, it comes down to very similar in, in, the, in the corporate world. It's they, 
people who are called leaders are actually just managers and managers aren't leaders they're just people who yes kind of... leader is a overused term in the military they are not leaders as much as they are your manager yeah. and if you look at it like that and you go to a drill and you think of it like that if you go into work as an active duty soldier and think of it like that you'll see that it that's really what it is they are your manager they are your boss they are not there to lead you they are there to tell you what to do and that's just a sad reality that i mean you can have your leaders the people that pull with you instead of tell you to pull they will be there they will like officers will stay in there are officers that will stay in the field during a field training exercise instead of just going back home to stay with the soldiers there are ncos that will do the work with the soldiers instead of going off to go do something else and tell other soldiers to do something else. There are NCOs, there are officers like that. But they are too far in between each other to have an effective force like we did back then. Like the Gulf War, that was probably the peak of the military. That was peak military right there. I I look back at it, and I wasn't even alive for that time. But I look back at it and I was like, wow, these guys are well put together. These guys know what they're doing. Well, it was very much celebrated during the Gulf War. It really was. And I feel it was celebrated more than any other time. Like during, And I think it's, maybe it's, it's a little bit different how campaigns were, perhaps, uh, Iraq and, and Afghanistan. Uh, where the, the Gulf War, as in like when we, when we went into Kuwait um, in, the, in the early 90s, um, that was very celebrated, and that was when Storm and Norman was um, was you know there were people who were really they were venerated like they weren't afterwards during Iraq during the you know the the last twenty years post nine eleven there were people that were became uh, celebrities but most of the time the people especially the brass who became celebrities became celebrities for the wrong reasons mm-hmm. rather than for the the uh, the right reasons um but um yeah i think that's one of the biggest problem is that i think there's a confusion of what leadership is because it gets it's a shorthand for just anybody who is in charge of people and that's never my definition of leadership leadership is what you like you described is the people who the mark of a leader is like you said the officer who would stay there rather than drive home the nco who's doing the work with the, with the men instead of instead of just um doing something else um but um we're coming up on um, i think we're coming up on about an hour and uh, i think this has been a, a, a great uh, great conversation so i think this is a great a great uh, place to to wind down but i want to ask you uh, at least for part 1 uh, I want to ask you: Is there anything else that you were thinking of during this time that you wanna you wanna say in this last few minutes? So, what I think all of this just boils down to, at the end of the day, uh, it's just a lack of patriotism anymore. Like people will join the army because they need a job, which there's nothing wrong with. But then they climb these ranks, and they're looking at a paycheck, and they're not looking at the country. And there's nothing wrong with being unsatisfied with the paycheck because it's not much to look at these days, especially with inflation. They get paid next to nothing. And I think that needs to change. But the fact of the matter is they're focused more on the money and they're focused more on climbing up 
than they are looking down at the whole country that we live in. And I don't think any of this should deter people from joining. If you want to join, and that's your prerogative, join. Don't let what I say discourage you. Join and make the organization better. Be the change you want to see. That's that's all I really have to say on that overall. I think that's an excellent place to stop. I think it was excellent and... and, uh... I think we can pick up from there for part two. Yep. Uh, I don't know when part two is going to be. It might be a couple episodes down. It might be next time. We'll find out. But thank you for listening. And bye.